You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Hi, this is Jennifer Stock, and you're listening to Ocean Currents. I'm sitting here in San Francisco at the Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary office at Chrissy Field with Barbara Emily. Barbara has fished commercially since 1985. She has been the strategy team leader for the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Associations since 1995 and was the chair of the Gulf of the Farallones National Marine Sanctuary Advisory Council from 2002 to 2007. She fishes with her husband, Larry Collins, and both are members of the San Francisco Crab Boat Owners Association and represent the San Francisco fleet on the California Salmon Council and are very active in fishery politics. Still a Sanctuary Council member, she was most recently appointed to the Pacific States Marine Fisheries Commission, which supports policy and action to conserve, develop, and manage fishery resources in California, Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and Alaska. Welcome, Barbara. It's so nice to have you today. Thank you. So why don't we just back up and talk about how did you decide to get into fishing? Well, my eight-year-old son was giving a a fishing pole for his birthday, and uh, we all went down to the Muni Pier and rigged it up, and there were, we caught fish, and uh, he lost interest after a few months, but my husband and I really liked it, so we went pole fishing around all of the piers of San Francisco Bay and the Pacifica Pier in the ocean and eventually took a a charter boat trip for salmon and uh, found that there were commercial fishermen near us, wondered what they were, what were those boats doing, and we said, oh, wow, you can get paid to do this? So we talked our family into helping us finance our first boat. We had a construction business. And uh, I was a cabinet maker, and he was a California licensed contractor, and uh, I guess he still is. Um, And so we were just going to, I don't know, um, supplement our income when times were slow in the construction business. And what species were you fishing for at the beginning? Just salmon, just salmon, Uh yeah. And have you been fishing other species since Right, then? after the best uh, salmon season ever in 1988, only three years after we started, uh, we were able to earn enough extra money to buy our first hundred crab traps. Our boat wasn't big enough to fish them, so we found an, somebody to work with and used his boat and our traps until we finally were able, in 1992, get our own boat that was big enough. Mm-hmm. So. And your boat is in San Francisco. You're at Fisherman's Wharf, right? Right, yeah. So what was the scene like in the 80s in terms of fishing? The Fisherman's Wharf has somewhat evolved to become a big tourist attraction, and you have to kind of go behind the streets to look and realize there's all these boats, and yeah. many of them are still very active. But yes. how has it changed since 1985? Well, uh, first of all, we didn't really have our boat there until 1989. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were over in Sausalito. But that there can give you a good sense. You know, there was a Sausalito uh, buying station for the CK Fish Company and the transient boats um, from all up and down the state. There were quite a few that delivered to that company. 
And so we've, we've just met a lot of people that way. Anyway, that's, that's gone. That's all yachts now. So that's a big change. Yes. <laughs> and how about in San Francisco? Is, it, there, is there still a, a reasonable fleet in there's, San Francisco? Yes, there is. There's, it's, I would say, smaller than it used to be. But um, and that's one of the, the things that we've noticed, my husband and I, that we would like to stop that attrition in fisheries and make it a more desirable career. Mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. But there's about, I would say, there's about 40 commercial boats that work out of uh, San Francisco, Fisherman's Wharf. And uh, I know that's surprising to a lot of people. It sounds like it should be more. Like well, 40 sounds small to me. Yeah, but most people think there aren't any, you know, yeah. that it's just tourists. It's just little cute boats that don't go anywhere, you know. Yeah. But, no, we, uh, but we're a small boat fleet. We're most of us under 50 feet, uh, family-owned operations, and um, people who live maybe not in San Francisco, a few do, but they keep their boat there and they live mostly in the Bay Area. Some actually down. have gone a far distance away to oh. to be able to afford a home, but they still come up to the city to fish. For the season that yeah. they're fishing for. You were mentioning family-owned fishing businesses. Are most of the fishing, the fishermen in San Francisco and the Bay Area here on the coast, are they independent in terms of they work for themselves? And how does it work to, to find a buyer to buy a product for fishing? When you're fishing. Right. You, well, at, at San Francisco, there's Pier 45 has quite a number of processors that uh, you can make arrangements with. You say, you, can you buy my fish? Will you? You know, you have to do that before you go fishing and make assumptions. When we first started, it wasn't really like that. You could pull up under any hoist and sell your fish. Mm-hmm. But uh, that's, that's actually changed over the, over the years. And do you set a price ahead of time before going out? Uh, yes, uh, we used to do we used to do that for um, uh, salmon, but that doesn't happen anymore with salmon. We just go fishing pretty much. Um, with crab, we still get a price that we understand. It's an agreement between the fishermen and the processors of what they will pay. And that's for the opening days. Those prices change as time goes by. But we don't really negotiate every change. But mm-hmm. we do get a good, we do get our price to start with for crab. Okay. It seems that fishing is changing a lot, and there's been so much in the news in terms of overfishing and more and more regulations. And how how has that affected independent fishermen like yourself? Well, the regulations have actually, I think, caused the. Uh, pretty much close to elimination of the salmon salmon fleet in California. Uh, There were about close to 5,000 salmon permits uh, in California, and now there's about 700 permits in California. It's a huge Huge difference, and it's largely regulatory. Uh, the, The kinds of structural changes that have been made to the seasons over the years um, have been mostly due to the returns on the Klamath River. It's what's called weak stock management. So the Sacramento River's been very healthy all this time, except very recently. And yet you wouldn't be able to harvest 
any salmon in the ocean because you have to watch out for the Klamath River salmon and you can't tell the difference by looking at them. So, What's the most recent change in the Sacramento River that's changed the health of the river? Well, uh, the diversion of water from, uh, from my point of view. Uh, there were some changes in the ocean during that time period that seemed to have alleviated since then. But I don't think that that kind of change would cause a complete collapse Mm -hmm. of a run of fish. Uh, In all the years I've been fishing, surely those kinds of changes existed before and didn't do what they did. What I noticed was that there used to be between 4 and 5 million acre feet of water diverted from the river and starting in about 2005 they increased that to 6 million acre feet. Um, of water diversion and then the stock collapsed so it seems pretty clear to me mm-hmm. so the fishing this is for salmon mm-hmm. right we're talking right. and that's yes. state regulated it's federally regulated federally regulated but for recreational oh. inside three miles there is some state regulation but they tend to just um, conform to the federal decisions mm-hmm now, is it the Pacific Fisheries Management Council that makes the salmon regulations? Yes, yes. And so you said that regulations have changed quite a bit, and it seems like there's probably a big disconnect between the health of the habitat and the, the regulations, or is that why it's becoming tighter and tighter? Well, the Management Council is not the Pacific Farmers Management Council, it's the Pacific Fishery Management Council. So even though it's clear where the problems originate, they can't do anything about that. So they can only regulate fisheries, and we just get ratcheted further and further down uh, mm-hmm. as the stocks weaken. So that we're, And finally, in 2008 and nine, we could not fish at all for salmon, and that's the first time that ever happened. That was a huge, huge, yes. huge loss. How have um, fishermen dealt with that economic blow? Yes, it was terrible. We did get disaster assistance, and if it wasn't for that, I don't think anybody would be left doing it. And even with the disaster help, I do believe that it's it's actually probably destroyed the salmon industry in California. I really think it has. A couple of years more, we'll see. Yeah. So we're still seeing salmon in markets. Where is oh, yeah. that salmon coming from? Well, there's farmed salmon. If it says it's Atlantic salmon, then it's farmed. And... Um, it's um, So that's one place. There's different kinds of fi- salmon. There's coho salmon. That's not the fish we were catching. Mm-hmm. Um, that's coming from Alaska. Uh, there's a few kings that come from Alaska, but our kings are the ones that we're missing uh, the, for the Sacramento River kings. And uh, so, you know, mostly Alaska uh, would be where you'd be seeing and farmed, farmed mm-hmm. Atlantics. Now, since you do work with the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association, how I know that Zeke Rader is very involved with trying to help promote um, protection of these fisheries and habitats. How has PCFFA been involved in trying to help with the water diversions? And- well, of course, they've been very, very strong in it and have joined in lawsuits uh, on on the water issues. And uh, there was a recent one that we just actually won in court so that that was good and which one is that well it was interesting the san joaquin what's it called san joaquin river water agencies 
sued the management council and said they shouldn't have allowed any fishing again still because it might have endangered their ability to get all the water they needed if their runs were were threatened. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's their activities that have caused this problem in the first place. So it was kind of a funny lawsuit. Interesting, (laughs) interesting. Uh, For those just tuning in, uh, this is Jennifer Stock. You're listening to Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Barbara Emley, a fisherman in San Francisco. We've been talking about salmon fishing. Um, Crab is a whole other situation. And crab is regulated by the state? The state, yes. And it's regulated by legislation rather Mm. than um, uh, the fishing game. You know, fishing game, uh, what do you call it? They uh, enforce the regulations and they write some of them, but it all originates in legislation. Mm -hmm. And it's the only fishery that does. Now, this fishery has been one of the most sustainable over the years. This is the, the fishery that really boomed San Francisco right. uh, during the gold rush, mm-hmm. and is it been because of the type of species it is, or the management of it that's right. helped it to sustain so well? I or? think it's the management. The management, of course, didn't originate uh, back at the beginning of the fishery. You could just take any old crab, took them out of San Francisco Bay, which we don't anymore. Uh, take females, take undersized. You know what we call undersized now. There was no. No uh, restriction. They found after a time and biologists getting to work on it that we could manage the fishery by what's called the three S's, size, sex, and season. So you don't fish for the fish, for the crab, when they're molting. So that's their season. You keep you keep an eye on um, when they go through their molting so that you don't harvest crab that don't have hard shells. Uh, and then the sex, you don't harvest any female crab, and they do look different. It's easy to tell a female's Dungeness mm-hmm. crab. So those are just put back in the water. And apparently that, and then there's the size, which has to be six and a quarter inches across the back of the shell at the biggest part of the shell. And all of those things mean that the crab can uh, reproduce at least twice in their lifetime. And uh, these three things together have kept it a good fishery. It, it has its cycles. It goes up and down, but uh, it's always been pretty good. And lately, it's been fantastic. We had the best landings last year in the San Francisco area ever. In 2010. Yeah. Now, 2011. It's it's we're just before Thanksgiving as we're recording this, and usually we have crab season opening up. Right. And recreation's been open for a while. We've been hearing good reports and good catches from recreational fishermen. Now, can you describe what's happening with commercial? There's always a little bit of a rough start in yes. terms of getting that price and waiting for the right weather. Um, but what's happening this year with the commercial season? Well, we're still waiting for the right price. We, we uh, the fishermen, uh, work together in three harbors. It's interesting that the uh, the Fishermen's Marketing Act in California from some time in the 30s allows fishermen to negotiate prices with other associations. It's not price-fixing in these circumstances. We can talk to each other and and figure out what we think will be a good price for the three harbors, Pillar Point, Bodega Bay, and San Francisco. 
So if one harbor can get a better price than the other, we sort of wait it out and see if we can get that same price. Mm -hmm. Um, And over time, eventually, it all sort of falls into place and we go fishing. It may not, it be a compromise that nobody's real happy with a lot of the time, but Mm -hmm. it's it's what we can do. Do the best that you can. Yeah. Now, what's happening this year? I've heard there's some crab that's coming in that's not fully in their shell yet. Well, that's what some people are wondering if that's the case. So some of the processors would like to make sure that they're buying crab that are fully uh, ready for market. This usually has not been an issue in this area. It's not required to do this kind of testing here. But they're using it as a tool to... Uh, to now another tool to hold us back whatever reason they have uh, to not want to buy right now or want a lower price or uh, I don't know. So as it goes on, if they the more they push off the fishermen from going, they can ratchet up the price because of the demand or Well, <clears throat> they they think they I think that they would like us to go for a, a lower price so they can make a greater profit and then um you know, the longer we wait, the more desperate we get, the more likely we are to agree to a lower price. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're waiting right now. We're waiting right now. Oh, we'll see what happens <laughs> next week. And the weather's good right now, too. The weather's good for these two days here, but then it's going to get bad. So I, I, it'd be very nice if we could get it settled today and set the traps. It's very dangerous to go out in bad weather with traps on your boat. Mm-hmm. It's much more... Um, it's much safer to fish that weather without traps on your boat. So once you get the traps off, you can go to work in in pretty bad weather. Mm-hmm. But you don't want to go out there in bad weather with your boat stacked up with traps. Uh huh. Must be tough to load them up and. Well, it tends to swell. roll boats over if there's bad weather. Oh, extra so, weight on yeah, top. Yeah, it's just not the stability that the boat's designed for. Mm-hmm. What do you use for bait? For, uh, squid. Uh, we use squid, and we have two jars. We have one jar that's got squid in it, and one jar that's got a an oily fish of some kind, a mackerel, or an, or albacore, or you know, something. How about Humboldt squid? Do you use? Are they a good? No, bait? we've never used Humboldt squid. Uh, I, there's not a commercial fishery for them, so. Right. We wouldn't know where to get them anyway. Fishermen will try anything, though. I mean, if they see, if they've got some Humboldt squid in their freezer at home, they, they'll they probably try it. Yeah. Uh, well, Humboldt squid have been a fairly recent um, species that have moved into our area. Yeah. How has that impacted the fishing in terms of, because from what I understand, they're voracious predators. Yes, that's what I understand, too. Now, they did some studies wondering stomach contents uh, to see whether or not they were what was responsible for for the lack of salmon, you know, did they eat up all the salmon? Is that why they they didn't go back? But they don't. Uh, they didn't find salmon in the stomach contents, so they're That's, not the problem. Hmm, it's water. Yeah. From from my understanding, with salmon, the critical habitat is really the 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 streams, the rivers. Yes. Um, and the ocean conditions are a part of that, but it's not so much because they have a they have a flexible diet. Yes. they can eat krill. They eat a lot of gelatinous right. zooplankton when they're it's young. Their habitat. Yeah. So when they come out of the river as very small fingerlings, you know, uh, then they need smaller bait. I think. I don't think. Although I actually caught a fish one time that went. It was a salmon that 
tried to eat a piece of bait that was the same size. <laughs> I was wow. fishing this great big herring. Oh my gosh. And here was this salmon, must have just come out of the river, and it was on my hook. I thought, oh, these guys are, they <laughs> they think they're bigger than they really are. <laughs> yeah, I've seen some gulls try to take off some mackerel that yeah. way as well. It's incredible. Yeah. <laughs> what do you see happening with fishing now, since you started in the 80s and you, the fleet, you said, is about 40 boats right now. Yeah. Where, what are you seeing happening to fishing as a, as a trade right now? What, what both my husband and I noticed, but it was more him at this time, that um, we were losing the younger people that were in our harbor to that starting families that couldn't really afford to stay in the Bay Area and so they just packed up and left, went up to Crescent City or places that are cheaper to live. And we were losing our community. Uh, and so we realized that the only way to make that change is for there to be a better, you know, for the fishermen to make a better living. Tired of living like peasants, you know. We want health insurance too, uh, all of that stuff. If we want to raise a family, we've got to have those things. We're, you know, it's a lot of people think fishermen are so different they can't possibly need the same stuff as everybody else. <laughs> but uh, we, so that's why we uh, got busy trying to get this community fishing association formed so that we could buy and sell our own products and keep the profits and uh, and put that back in the fisherman's pocket. So can we talk about that a little bit? Yes. What is the Community Fishermen's Association all about? What is your goal here to do? Well, there's a few different goals. The Magnuson Act says that community fishing associations can receive what's called initial allocation of of quota in the ground fish. Ground fish are your rock fishes and also your soles and um, the trolley and things like that. Now, we're not so much interested in trying to catch those small soles because we wouldn't be able to harvest enough to make, you know, that's more of something appropriate for the trawl fleet. But we would like to harvest the rock fish as we used to do that. And... uh, we are what we call portfolio fishermen. We need more than one species to to make it. You know, we're not. <clears throat> and if you if you focus on just one species, that's bad for that species. You put all your, you know, it, it it's insensible in a small boat fleet that you move uh, to other species when the one you're trying to catch seems weak. Mm-hmm. To go catch something else. Mm-hmm. But we've been kept out of the rockfish for a number of years um, because of the huge closure of the rockfish conservation area. Mm-hmm. So we set up the Community of Fishing Association to be able to receive allocation. And our idea was that if we did get an allocation of quota, then we would share that amongst our members. They could go harvest that uh, as they needed. Um, and some of our members are more inclined to want to do those fisheries anyway. Mm-hmm. So that's a, it's the initial thinking. The management council then went on to decide that they weren't going to give any initial allocation to community fishing associations, in spite of what Magnus and X said. So we are still working on ways of improving our lot. 
-hmm. So we have got space at Pier 45, so we're now like another processor at Pier 45, but we're buying from our own, from our own membership. And we're about, we started in February. We're about to have our first real big season, this, this crab season, and we'll see how we do. If we're able to sell all of those crabs at prices that are good for our members. And do you find the buyers are local here? They distribute the seafood here local in the Bay Area? Um, do buyers well, do that? Well, I mean, you're selling out. You're, you're working together as a co-op. Right. And so is the product that you're bringing into port being distributed here locally in the Bay well, Area? Well, that's what we are hoping will happen. And we do have some outlets that are local. Um, on the other hand, we also have a great interest, and you may have heard about this, but we have a great interest on the part of certain brokers who would like to move live crab to China. There's a huge market mm. in China. And this could end up being an issue. Uh, this happened with the lobster fleet in Southern California. They're doing very well, but they had their annual uh, lobster festival, and they couldn't get any lobster. They would all have gone to China. They had to get Maine lobster in for their for their California Lobster Festival, which is a different species altogether. Yeah. So it's possible that, you know, this has happened of, of sort of giving our resources away uh, and not keeping them here. And it is our goal to sell locally. On the other hand, when somebody comes up and says, I'll buy everything you've got and my check is good and here it is on the spot, no waiting, it's hard to turn that down. Right. There's you a big know, incentive there. We want to survive as a group, too, besides, yeah. uh, you know, help the keep the product in the local community. Mm -hmm. Well, we need to take a short break here, but we'll be back in just a little bit, continuing to talk with Barbara Emily, a fisherman in San Francisco. And we've been talking a lot about salmon and crab fishing and how to make it as a fisherman here in uh, San Francisco. We'll be right back. Jennifer Stock, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and I'm talking with Barbara Emily, a fisherman in San Francisco. We've been talking a bit about salmon and rockfish, or salmon and Dungeness crab, but um, one of the other things you've set up recently, Barbara, is the Community Fishing Association. We were just talking about that, and that's to help deliver certain products to the market, working together as a group, trying to keep yourselves sustainable and alive as a group. Um, you've recently been trying to get in with um, an exempted fishing permit. There's mm -hmm. a big area closed between Washington and California that's closed rock fishing for a commercial. That's right. Well, so, it's closed to recreational. And recreational, too. And yes. So there's a recreational fishery and commercial near shore, mm -hmm. but not in the offshore waters. That's right. And that's right. been for years now. Oh, it started in so? 19, 2000, 1999. Yeah. yeah. We, it, for, I remember when it started, we didn't know how long it was going to be, and here it is, it's been 10 plus years. Yes. So yeah. tell me, how. what is the, the goal of getting an exempted fishing permit, and what do you think their... Um, What's the authority that the Magnus and Stevens Act and the Pacific Fisheries Management Council has to potentially give you that? Right. It's um, What we're trying to do is show that we can use 
some fishing gear, pretty old-fashioned gear, uh, to avoid the species of concern that caused the creation of the rockfish conservation area in the first place. There was overfishing on the part of trawlers, not their fault. They followed the rules, but the rules uh, allowed fishing above the levels that were sustainable at the time. It was an honest mistake that was made by the council. But in any case, these species were overfished, and they had to set up these big rebuilding plans in order for the trawlers to be able to keep working. They set up this rockfish conservation area. Now, that whole area was not designed... I mean, it, the small boat fleet was not the issue. Right. And the number of fish that we can harvest with hook and line was not the issue. You know, you can certainly grab a whole bunch more with a net than you can with a few hooks. Mm-hmm. So we've been trying to get some fishing back in that area. It's not been successful. So now what we are trying to do is show that we can keep our hooks off the bottom where those fish live that are in trouble and harvest the, uh, the very abundant midwater fish, rock fishes that are in the area. So the species that are of concern are are bottom dwellers. Pretty much, so yes. canary rockfish, what canary are Canary rockfish, uh, yellow eye rockfish. We always called them golden eye in our, in our group, but mm-hmm. I guess the official name is yellow eye. Uh-huh. Uh, fishermen have different names for yeah. fish. <laughs> we called the canaries fantails. Oh. I don't know why, but they were fantails. Well, I can we never see that. we never heard of a canary rockfish. We uh-huh. know what that was. So, but anyway, yeah, those are the species of concern right now. The boccaccio, I think, are also maybe still some issues there. The widow rockfish, which are not bottom dwellers, uh, were just take just declared rebuilt. So mm-hmm. that group of fish is available for harvest. We believed that if we were able to get this um, initial allocation that I was speaking about earlier, the problem has consistently been that they can give you as many pounds as they can dream up, but if you can't go fish where those fish live, it doesn't do you any good. So, and that's been basically the problem. Mm -hmm. Those fish that were allowed to harvest live in the rockfish conservation area. And they're probably rebounding even faster oh, yeah, since they yeah. weren't They haven't overfished. been touched. for. They weren't overfished in the first place. That's right. right. The yellowtail rockfish is our target species in this, uh, this permit. So we've managed to get uh, the council to agree to move us forward. We're in public comment period now, for between now and June of next year. And... Uh, then the council will decide after that whether or not to let the whole thing happen. You know, so that's that's where we are. The Community Fishing Association applied for this exempted fishery permit, and uh, the idea once again is to get us uh, the third piece of our portfolio that's been missing all these years. Mm-hmm. How many? Um, fishermen would that allow to go out? Well, it would allow very few for the for the study itself to see whether it works, whether the gear works. If they decide that the gear does work after two or three years of uh, testing it, then it would be open to anybody who who wants to do it. So that's uh, that's our idea. Is to you know, there's so few of us left, we can't imagine it being. Right. A problem. And it's hook and line. It's, it's not hook and line. dragging the bottom. Right, exactly. 
What is the the draggers, the trawlers? What's their future for fishing? Well, their future seems pretty good. The ones that managed to stay afloat after they went to this individual fishing quota, or what's called cat shares. Uh, we're very opposed to cat shares. The smaller boat fishermen. Uh, it's like giving away public resources. It's like giving the national trees in the national forest to Weyerhaeuser and say, go, go get them. You know, here's your share based on how many you cut down in the past. You get more. The more you've cut down, the more you get now. Well, that's how that's working, and we don't think it's right. So can you describe it a little bit in terms of what is a cat share program? Well, this is a program to to uh, give a quota, an individual quota that's given to the fisherman. He gets those fish. He owns them before he catches them. And uh, he can decide when to catch them, uh, you know, all of that, uh, based on his schedule and what he, in weather and all of that. Uh, but they're his. And the more you caught in the past, the more you're entitled to under this program. Now, there's a bycatch uh, where the, the conservation benefit, apparently two benefits, that it reduces the size of the fleet because it sort of, you know, the people that didn't have enough harvest in the past can't uh, afford to do it. You know, so they sell what little piece of quota they have. It tends to, in my point of view, to um, industrialize the fishing, consolidate it into smaller, into fewer boats, bigger and bigger companies owning these uh, shares of mm -hmm. fish. So, these communities that we have on the coast here, I'm just thinking, you know, in our region, the Dega Bay, Bolinas. Uh, Sausalito is kind of hard to even see the fishing community there anymore. Yeah, it's, yeah pretty much exactly. gone. Yep. Um, San Francisco, Half Moon Bay, and Princeton Harbor. Mm -hmm. How are how are they reacting to all this in terms of trying to stay afloat with this, these big changes? Uh, I'm I'm not sure what's going on in Pillar Point. I mean, Princeton Harbor has uh, they have problems of their own. Um, the uh, we crab boat owners, in conjunction with the Pacific Coast Federation of Fishermen's Association, has sued, thinking that this is illegal. You can't be giving fish away like this, into ownership, uh, just wrong. <laughs> you know? So we've sued, but we're not doing well in that lawsuit yet. It would have to, I think, go to the Supreme Court next, and I. Well, well, so when will you find out about the exempted fishing permit? Uh, in June, we'll find out if it goes, if it's going to go on, if they're going to say, yeah, to As the next uh, step, which we actually do it, mm -hmm. you know. Going back to some crab, the crab fishery, uh, I've heard in the news in the past that fishermen from Oregon and Washington would come down for the California season mm -hmm. and fish here, and it would it's three weeks or so prior to their fishing season opening up, and this has kind of created a conflict for Yes, it's, uh, it was a real problem. Fishermen. Yes, they came with... The, the fishery here was always a day fishery. Uh, guys went out and ran their traps every day, came in with the product late afternoon, because it started at 3 in the morning. Come in and deliver your crab every day. You go home and stay with your family for dinner. Um, 
get up and go back to work at three in the morning again, you know. And that's that's been the, the local fishery. And these guys that came from out of state uh, had huge holding tanks. They could hold as many as 50,000 pounds in their boats. They had way more traps than we have. Uh, and they fished for maybe five days, uh, as they wouldn't be more than that, three to five days perhaps before they came in with their crab. They would keep the market uh, flooded, prices low, uh, force us into trying to think about alternatives to our day fishery, but we didn't really get into that tanking of crabs, as they call it, locally. Um, and these boats... Uh, had like I say, lots and lots of traps. Traps. We've been trying to get trap limits in California for about eight years, uh, working hard at it and get it through the legislature. Then uh, Schwarzenegger veto- vetoed two bills that we got through, um, and now we finally got a bill through, which was signed by uh, Governor Brown. So we do finally have trap limits in California. Won't go into effect until next year. But hopefully it will help. And they can still come and fish here, but they can't bring a thousand traps, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so was there concern that this would um, take away the crab earlier and the season would become shorter? Well, or? it does do that. I mean, all there's, there's a certain number of crabs that are available for harvest in the ocean when you, when you manage the way that it's managed. Mm-hmm. So we apparently, according to biologists they say we catch 99 percent of the legal crab in each year wow but that leaves enough for the next year that to come along and you know be ready for the next year Mm -hmm. so it's a question of how fast you catch those if you're going to catch 99 percent we have a seven month season but they can be all gone by the time two weeks has gone by right and then there's no crab for the other times of year. There's no crab for Super Bowl. There's no crab for Chinese New Year. You know, they're they're just pretty much gone by then. Yeah. And the price goes up as they become fewer in numbers. Mm-hmm. So we think that even though the price might start a little higher, it will last longer and it will be more even price uh-huh. uh, as the season goes so along. It levels the it le- yeah it level a little it bit. Out. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah. What is that? Tell us a story of a day on the water that's memorable oh, to you. Oh, I mean, because your life, you're t- we're talking a lot about the politics and the management, but right. the real life real for life. becoming a fisherman is on the water. Yes, well, I'll tell you a story of one day that sticks out in my mind. There's so many. The ocean is never the same uh, from day to day. You can go back to the same exact spot, and it's different the next day. Mm-hmm. But they talk sometimes about hot spots in the ocean and trying to set aside hot spots. And uh, it's my opinion you can't do that because those hot spots move around. We were fishing for salmon and we left the harbor early in the morning and there weren't any other boats around. The fleet had pretty much moved north. We were up Mendocino fishing and we came out of the Mendocino anchorage and my husband said, well, this looks good here. This looks pretty fishy. Uh, she bait. Let's set our gear. So we did. And then all of a sudden, the ocean was just a boil with life. 
a thousand dolphins jumping through the area. There were whales, humpback whales all over the place, birds, pelicans diving, just an amazing, amazing boil of life. And we caught a few fish. They were mostly uh, coho, which we weren't allowed to keep, but there were a few kings mixed in, so... We said, well, let's go back and turn back on that. We turned back. Nothing. It's gone. Don't know where those animals went. Where are the thousand dolphins go? Just gone. That's amazing. But it was just beautiful and just uh, unbelievably lively. It's just stunning. <laughs> Is that what we call a feeding frenzy? Yeah, that's what it was. That's yeah. exciting. And yeah. it comes and then it's gone. And then it's gone. That's yeah. what's amazing about the ocean to me. It's yes. just, you just never know. That's right. So you exciting. <laughs> That's wonderful. So you've been fairly involved with the Gulf of the Farallones Sanctuary through mm-hmm. the Advisory Council. That's right. Uh, what do you see the sanctuary's role in helping to protect fisheries? Well, um, I think that there are a lot of people that would like the sanctuary to be more engaged in fisheries management. Fishermen, especially those of us who have been involved in fisheries management, can't see that as a, as a role for the sanctuary. There's already, I mean, the meetings that the Management Council holds, five a year, seven days long, uh, thousands of people, hundreds of scientists, uh, advisors from all walks of life, from conservation to fishing. It's just the the sanctuary couldn't possibly do anything like that. And so we don't think that they should be engaged in fisheries management. Uh, I think that they can work to help the fishing communities in their area, and I think that they do. I think, for example, uh, both sanctuaries, Cordell Bank and Gulf of the Farallons, have supported this effort to get an exempted fishery permit. I think that they feel that that's good for the local small boat fleet. It'll be good for the sanctuary. It's sustainable. Yes, and it's a sustainable fishery. A lot of people seem surprised that there's any fishing allowed in the sanctuary. Yeah, I encounter that a lot. It's not, that's not what it's about. You know, the sanctuaries were established in the first place about oil, oil development and drilling. It mm-hmm. was never about fisheries, and... Fishing was protected in those laws that is, that set up the first sanctuaries. Right. So, yeah. yeah, it's different. I, I've seen with um, with all the national marine sanctuaries, it's different. Every single sanctuary is different mm-hmm. in terms of the role they play, and it's based on the designation document of right. how that sanctuary got established. And how has what's been some of your how have you carried your voice as a fisherman through the sanctuary advisory council what are some pieces that you feel that have helped fishing yes i think that um when we first got started here uh there was um uh, forget what we oh the management plan so we were helping to write the new management plan the national office wanted each sanctuary to get that re-upped kind of, you know, so there was a fishing activities working group and I was able to represent the fishing voice um, and the concerns of fishermen there. And um, I think that it, I think we were successful. I mean, I hate to say this, but that one of the problems that happens is that some sanctuaries become um, too 
beholden to the conservation community's needs and interests. And it's the sanctuary needs to be careful that they not do that. They've got to hear from all of the interests, all of the constituencies, and not just the uh, conservation groups. Some are uh, some conservationists are what I call crisis oriented. You know, their fundraising comes from. Uh, people being concerned about a particular issue, they be, and people become concerned about that issue because that some conservation group has told them that it's boy, real problem here. Ocean's dead. The ocean's really dead. This ocean's isn't dead at all, and it's well managed fisheries in the west coast at least. I don't know about the rest of the coast, you know, mm-hmm. but these these issues that are raised by the conservationists are kind of just. I don't know, pulled out of the air to help them raise money. So we have to be careful uh, not to fall into that. There's even some science. Scientists, uh, some some work, uh, that the one that said all the fish would be gone by 2048, that, that's been, you know, that got headlines. But the fact is that after peer review, that work was discredited. That did not get headlines. What do you think the biggest concerns are these days for the future of our health of our ocean? Well, from uh, your perspective as a fisherman. Yeah, I I don't I know that the ocean since I started in 1985 has been constantly changing. It goes through cycles. We've got warm water cycles, cold water cycles. It's just uh it's not possible to decide yet whether or not there is going to be big climate change issues for us. I think that it's possible that there will be, but it's not going to be something that I think we can prepare for as far as fishing. You know, it, it, what's going to happen is if there are big changes is that perhaps the species that are available for harvest, what we're prepared to harvest, Maybe it won't be salmon country anymore. Mm-hmm. But we won't know how to harvest what kind of country it is. And right. that'll be something that that evolves over time. <clears throat> you know, maybe I remember during the big El Nino uh, of, I forget which one it was, might have been the 98 El Nino, that there was um, these langostinos, <laughs> these small uh, little red lobster type right. uh, creatures were all over the beaches up here. Uh-huh. And that's a commercial fishery in Mexico. Well, if that ended up being a a large uh, number of those animals here during the climate change, perhaps we would have to learn how to harvest them. So things will change, and it's basically a waiting game. Yeah, I would think for us that it is, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's hard to think about how to to get ready for it because you don't know what's going to happen. Well, it's very challenging, I think, with the... The magnitude of the ocean and the cycles that it currently has that yeah. we barely know about. It's yes. very large environment. I think it's one of the challenges about the ocean is that we know so little yes. about it. Yet and we, we shouldn't pretend it. that we know more than we do because you can't know this stuff. Too hard. <laughs> well, I guess the best thing we can do then is just to keep working collaboratively across all disciplines. And Yes, I keep, agree with that. Keep a conversation active there was a time when the conservation community and the fishing community worked really well together but that's changed and i would like it to go back fishermen are conservationists they have to be 
their future depends on it, mm-hmm. on, a, on a good, healthy environment, both in the river and in the ocean. It's very important to us. Yeah. We're not the enemy of conservation. Right. right? Well, you know the ocean better than anybody. That's right, but nobody wants to listen. <laughs> um, is there an organization that you see is listening to fishermen in terms of dealing with these conservation issues? The organization that I feel the most, uh, that we get the most help from, that I think philosophically is the best, is uh, EcoTrust. EcoTrust's basic fundamental philosophy is that you can't really conserve natural resources without conserving the community that depends on them. Mm-hmm. And so EcoTrust does a lot of work, both in forestry and in fisheries, to help communities. And this is... Uh, this is a good organization. Yeah, they did a report for the sanctuaries during the management plan. Yes, they did, yeah. About the socioeconomic impacts. It's kind of an economic group. Mm-hmm. They're, they're more into the economics of things, but they're they're not... It's, I don't know, the, the Environmental Defense Fund is a more uh, conservative uh, economic kind of group that believes in what you call market-based solutions which lead maybe sometimes to this consolidation. Uh, we not, we, that led to the cat shares. We don't think that's the right approach. You know, the uh, EcoTrust is, is not. It's a much more of a, you know, uh, I, I don't know how to put it, but they're more community-based. They do care what happens to the communities. We're just getting, we're getting close towards the end here. I'm talking with Barbara Emley, and this is Ocean Currents. Barbara is a fisherman. You mentioned earlier uh, some of the changes you've seen and what is the future for fishing in terms of younger people coming in? I know this is an issue for farming. Yes. And sustainable farmers are, you know, they're looking to see the next generation coming up and it's been it's been challenging. What's that like for fishing? It seems like a tough, tough it's trade a tough to get one. into. Yeah, it's a tough one. Uh, it's, it's management oriented a lot. If there's enough salmon around to allow full salmon seasons and to um, keep the price of that the fishermen are paid at a at a decent decent amount, then fishermen do the young fishermen just come out of the woodwork. We see them. We saw them in the two thousand three, four, five that time period. A lot of new young guys, but then when the salmon crashed, they disappeared too. We, you know, where'd those guys go? Where'd that boat go? We don't know. They, they were around and now they're gone. Mm. So we need some sort of um, um, future that's reliable for a young person. If he wants to have a family and to support his family with fishing, he has to be able to see some reliability in his future. Right, and you need to look around your community to see how the rest of your community is doing. Yes, it's yeah. a peer thing as well. You know, and we've, and it's all, about, you know, you could say it's from a selfish point of view as well. Who's going to buy my boat? Mm-hmm. You know, it's always been something like, you know, when we retire, where's the next group? Who's going to be the next guy that is president of Crab Boat Owners Association? We don't see that person. Yeah, scary. Yeah. You need that voice. I think the age of the average age of fishboat captains is just going up every year. Hmm. It means nobody's coming in. Well, that's scary. Yep. It's a pretty scary thing. Yep. Well, how can we as consumers 
uh, listeners here, we're consumers of seafood, and how can we help support sustainable fishing communities? Well, I think that you can, you, uh, I, do, I don't know how, really, you've got to buy local, got to buy locally, the, 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 the cards that tell you what you should and shouldn't buy have a lot of error in them, and uh, there's problems with relying on those cards. Our group is the San Francisco Community Fishing Association. We intend at some point to have a retail store. It's a little daunting right now to be able to do that. But right now we're we're selling wholesale, but we're selling to other people who have share of that same, you know, philosophy of providing locally you know, local fish. And we're going to try to come up with a uh, standard that we hold to, Mm -hmm. that the public can say, okay, this group says they do this, this, and this, and they do, Mm -hmm. you know, and and, uh, see what we can do that way to help the consumer figure out what to buy. But ask ask your fishmonger. I mean, you get lots of lies. We ask all the time. Then it's lie. hard. They I, lie. You know, even as a fairly, I don't consider myself super knowledgeable, but I know what I should be buying, mm-hmm. and it's hard when you ask the questions. They don't always know, and it's so tricky. Yes, it Very is tricky. tricky. And it, I'm finding more and more you just have to go to the source to yes. get what you want. Well, this is true. And as of yet, we can't provide that. We're, we're just wholesale just yet, you know, but mm-hmm. we hope soon to be the source for the Bay Area that people could go to. Great. Is there any other last comments or things you'd like to share that I haven't talked about or asked about? No, I think you've done a really good job of asking about all all the issues. Thank you so much. (laughs) It's wonderful to talk with a woman. There's very few fishermen (laughs) that are women. Yes. I'm sure that your your, uh, presence in the fishing fleet is helpful. It is. The women who are there are are helpful. They, They have a different a different uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Well, so. fantastic. Thanks so much for sharing your your livelihood with us today. Okay, you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.